We are the Unfairest Sex. Two women, two glasses of wine and a whole world of problems to navigate. Yes, there's going to be some rage. There's also going to be a hell of a lot of learning, laughing, catharsis and camaraderie along the way. So grab a glass of wine and join us. I definitely swapped laughing and learning around there, but... That's fine. And also, for the first time in quite a while, this is not a morning one and we've both got a glass of wine. So Hell yeah. It's yes, it's Christmas. Nice... Yeah. Happy Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays or, or happy... It's Hanukkah. <laughs> happy Hanukkah. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. Oh, tomorrow, apparently, is um, International um, Mountain Appreciation Day. So if you like a mountain, so tomorrow being uh, Monday the 11th, is we're recording this on Sunday the 10th, Monday the 11th is uh, International Mountain Awareness or Appreciation Day. So if you happen to like mountains on that day, have a great day. I mean, I might start celebrating that instead of Santa. I feel like there's choices now. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, we've got we've got mountains. We've got Santa. You know, if you want to go for the Jeebus, you can do that, or or the Hanukkah armadillo. Yeah. Um, just a Superman and a and a bunny rabbit, and we got a full house. <laughs> if anyone hasn't seen Friends uh, and that episode, then uh, you're probably too young to be listening to this. Um, and uh, go and watch it right now. <laughs> absolutely absolutely friends should always be homework um and that kind of leads us nicely into what today is about we're not celebrating the uh, easter bunny's funeral what we are celebrating is 12 days of feminism so 12 bits of news which we think are worth celebrating this year now one thing i am going to say is i actually found this quite hard this year um and it just simply comes down to the fact there's a lot of harrowing and unsettling news which is taking place all corners of the world at the moment and um, it sometimes feels like we're actually taking a step back in human rights, with women's rights, with LGBTQ plus rights. And it can become quite tiring watching the news and kind of constantly trying to find the good, um, the good in people and the good in, in you know, in the world. Um, but we did promise ourselves at least one positive episode. Uh, and that's what this is. So we've chosen 12 pieces of feminist news that we think are worth yeah and we've we've done some pretty in-depth stuff before and i think i like to think that everyone who listens to this knows that we do a real mix and you know we did we did barbie we've done disney princess but we've also done you know depp and herd and roe versus wade and so we've got a mix of things but yeah we don't need an additional meh to our holiday season and uh yeah we recognize that there's a lot of meh but um we're here to try and brighten the times. <laughs> yeah. So if you will join us for the 12 days of feminism, uh, we'd love to, to start with number one. Oh, actually, one thing we should probably note. Um, sorry, what did you say? So just a reminder to all listeners, we are open to your sorry, what did you say moments. These are meant to be a opportunity for you to get involved in the podcast, for you to send in your stories and to kind of get involved in the conversation. So if you have a sorry, what did you say? Sorry, what did you say? Story or anecdote that you'd love to share um we would really love to hear it so uh, like keep an eye at the end or keep an ear at the end of this episode where Rhiannon will run through kind of different ways to get in touch with us um but just a really quick kind of high level you can grab us on gmail you can uh, message us directly on instagram um are just two ways that you can reach out so we'd really love to hear from you and we're going to pick those back up again in the new year but this episode we're just going to go straight into the 12 days of feminism because we've only got 90 minutes and uh, we're fully aware that we are chatty people so um we want to get going asap cool so rihanna do you want to take us away with number one I haven't got the blooming spreadsheet open. I'm gonna I'm gonna take number one 
as being Barbie, Taylor and Beyonce. Yes, please. That's yeah. a great start. Okay. Yeah, let's Fabulous. start there. <laughs> so as everyone knows, we we did a Barbie episode. We all know how uh, we at this podcast feel about that film, how wonderful it is and how it brought everyone together in all its wonderful pinkness. Um, but what we actually wanted to talk about is the effect that uh, women and particularly Barbie, Taylor Swift and Beyonce have had on the economy uh, this year. So in uh, quarter three alone, uh, the US economy grew by $8.5 billion or, uh, or eight, the US economy had $8.5 billion go into it as a result of Taylor Swift and Beyonce's tours, which is just utterly astounding. Um, and those two tours, and then on top of that, the Barbie and Oppenheimer movies, because obviously they, they came together, um, they contributed to 0.7 percentage points of growth in the US, which is utter madness. The huge, huge percentage of growth increase, all because of two tours yeah. and two films um and uh the money was obviously coming in in lots of different ways so it was coming through the tours it was coming through film sales film ticket sales but also through hotels flights food uh for going to those events um and the impact uh the kind of want to highlight the impact that these women have had on the economy and how like how astonishing it is and it's not just on so let's talk about um Taylor Swift briefly it's not just um the tour in particular but the impact for instance that when she went to see her maybe new boyfriend uh who's a, who is a tight end of the Kansas City Chiefs as a result of her going, the sales in a single day uh, more than doubled than in the previous season record. The, 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 the sales in a single day for tickets for the next week more than doubled on the previous season's record, which is just utterly mad. Um, digital streaming device maker Roku said that the largest demographic increase for the Chiefs versus Bears game was women ages 18 to 49, and that it, that had jumped up by 63% from the previous <laughs> week. Um, and Bloody after hell. Taylor Swift attended the uh, Chiefs versus Bears game, the amount of viewers reached a an all-time high of 24.3 million. A standard preseason game gets about 16.7 million. So she gained like eight. She she managed to gain that uh, those games about eight million viewers. Like it's Pretty just hell. astonishing it's... the 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 what do they call it the Swift effect, like what that did. <laughs> yeah. And the problem is, and we've spoken about this before, isn't it? Because a lot of people mock things such as like the Swift effect or like, you know, people going a bit crazy for Barbie and all that kind of stuff. And what I read was that apparently the directors of Oppenheim and spoke to Margie, uh, Margot Robbie and basically asked her to move the release date of Barbie. And she turned around and went, absolutely not. So actually it's Margot Robbie who is responsible um, for kind of making that weekend happen and getting people back in the cinema. It wasn't just yep. the fact that she brought money back into the economy or that, you know, that, that whole weekend brought money back into the economy. It brought, like, it fed back into the culture of society, mm-hmm. isn't it? it? kind of reignited something that was such commonplace for us before COVID. Yep. Um, so, yeah, no, it was it was a really fascinating year, I think, seeing women entrepreneurs really succeed 
but then also to have the people following them being given a little bit more credit as well for the fact that suddenly these whimsical girly you know fascinations with celebrities oh hang on there's actually an economic effect here Mm -hmm. and maybe they're not quite as silly as as we were we were calling them before yeah i mean and the whole um the whole barbieheimer thing you know the chances are who who knows but i'd be really interested and they must have the stats somewhere the number of um women that went to oppenheimer that wouldn't otherwise and the number of men that went to barbie that wouldn't other otherwise like what that crossover actually was and as we as we know I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. Um, but yeah, it would be it would be super interesting. No, that's a really good point, though. The, that's a really good point. Yeah, whether how much did Oppenheimer gain from Margot Robbie saying, "Absolutely not, I'm not moving this film," and mm-hmm. making Barbie was it Barbieheimer? Is that what we called it? Oppen yeah, Barbieheimer, Oppen Barbie. The other way doesn't make sense. <laughs> That's the thing, is it? It's, it's making it's like cross generational. It's it's cross gender. It's, it's basically it's like broadening the audience that you have, which yeah. is why I think when I know football is going to come up a little bit later, but that's why football for me is crazy. Is why would you not want to like promote that game further and kind of like broaden the audience? And the whole time you're yeah. shutting like female players out of this and not making it you know a viable game like career for them, you're shutting out a huge part of the market. It's just so, so funny from like an economics point of view. It really is. I mean, one of the. I mean, I don't every every. I don't know how to take this next bit of information, but the a lot of things that I've read about this, people have said, oh, well, you know, it's not going to last. It was just the tours and, and then they're not going to have an effect. And it's like, well, OK, so the tours brought in a lot of money. And of course, the same effect is not going to continue. The same amount of money is not going to be going into those cities when those tours aren't happening. But again, you see Taylor Swift at an event and suddenly everyone wants to be part of that. And you know it's it's yeah it's it's like okay so no the tours aren't aren't bringing in money but the people still Mm. are but also the pink effect i think like the the barbie film like maybe people aren't still going to cinemas to go and see barbie but people are still buying pink stuff and people are still buying merch barbie merch and mattel's um mattel sales have gone through the roof so I think there there is yeah. a there is a real impact there, um, and actually, so I read something the other day, and I wanted to um, just mention sort of the yeah the, the the Taylor Swift effect and how this isn't a sort of new um, phenomena. Um, so Marilyn Monroe did a similar sort of thing. She used to use her face to get people to go to things and and to support other women um and so i read a story the other day about how ella fitzgerald couldn't get a gig at a particular club because she was both overweight and she was black and so marilyn monroe rang the club and said if i'm there if you book her i will be front table every single night and the amount of people that will come to your club to see me will be worth it and the press that will come will be worth it and she's amazing so you you have to book her anyway and so mm. they agreed and they booked her and um she was indeed there every single night and Ella Fitzgerald said she never had to like beg for another club job ever again but again it's like it's women using their image like it's famous women, women using their women their image to support other people and I know that wasn't her Taylor Swift's plan when she went to that Kansas Chiefs game but that's the effect it had and it's a very similar thing and it's it it, this Mm. i think it shows how um 
women supporting women not bringing the ladder up behind them and all of that stuff is a real positive on the second day of feminism a true love game it doesn't fit it doesn't fit but i'm trying um okay number two so uh number two on the second day of feminism is the icelandic strikes that happened on october 24th of this year uh they were joined by prime minister of iceland um a lady called katrine jacobs jacobs daughtry yeah daughtry means daughter, daughter daughter of so yeah it's jack i would say jacobs daughtry <laughs> jacobs that daughtry perfect yeah we do our best. Basically, the, I, the Prime Minister of Iceland... Forgive us. Please forgive us, Catherine. Um, so the Prime Minister of Iceland joined an estimated 100,000 women and non-binary people in an all-day strike. And now this is the biggest protest the country uh, apparently has ever seen. Uh, it was organised under the slogan, Do You Call This Equality? And the strike was called to raise awareness around the systemic wage discrimination and protest gender-based violence, as well as to highlight unpaid work such as childcare that often falls on women. Now, it's been quoted in some professions, Icelandic women still earn 21% less than men and more than 40% of women have experienced gender-based or sexual violence. So those were kind of the core parts of the strike in October. Now, this strike mirrors the 1975 strike that also took place in Iceland. Um, It was known as the Women's Day Off or more colloquially as the Long Friday. Now, this strike saw 90% of Iceland's female population participate in a 24-hour strike to demonstrate the indispensable work of women for Iceland's economy and society and to protest wage discrepancy and unfair employment practices. Now, we talk about this a lot in terms of uh, the unpaid labour and actually being able to demonstrate how much of an economic benefit that has. Some people have actually taken the time to try and work out how much a stay-at-home parent would cost if you were to actually hire out those roles. And so there is actually now an economic um, figure put against that. And obviously changes depending on which country you're in. Uh, we also know that a lot of the reason that there is a gender pay gap usually starts to happen around the start of families. So when people start having children, um, and that's generally when that gap starts to, to widen. And it's usually because women end up picking up far more unpaid work, um, enabling their husbands or their their male partners to continue uh, climbing up that corporate ladder. Now, uh, when I spoke to a friend of mine about this earlier today, about this being one of the points we're raising in this podcast, he goes, well, what's happened? You know, what did the strike achieve? Now, annoyingly, I couldn't find anything tangible at this point. However, I do really think it's worth noting that Iceland's parliament passed a law guaranteeing equal pay the year that followed the 1975 protest. And it also, the 1975 protest, also paved the way for the election of the first democratically elected female president in the world five years after in 1980. So, like, whilst nothing's happened in the... (laughs) Thank you. Great um, so as nothing's happened in like the few months that's come after, you know, I am, will be watching this yeah. space because I think that, you know, the whole point of this is to build momentum and to show that, you know, we're not going to sit still on this stuff and it really matters. Um, it's also really cool to note that the 1979, uh, the 1975 strike also inspired the 2016 Black Monday strike, which happened in Poland, and also the 2017 and 2018 International Women's Strike, which was a global movement coordinated across over 50 countries on International Women's Day. Um, so, you know, it's, it's having a domino effect. And this is what's really cool about this. Um, according to a tweet... oh. Yeah, so effect. And the other thing that's, you know, I, I I couldn't really back this up, but according to a tweet made by Iceland's president, 
Gudni Johannesson. Women in Iceland are striking today for the seventh time since the famous Women's Day off in 1975. Now, I couldn't find these back. That's the only thing I can think of is like this. The one that happened this year was known as the, the second full day strike. So the only thing I can think is that these were the, the there's been two 24 hour strikes. And the, but there's been other activity happening in between. And so for me, part of this feels like it's just, again, a domino effect that is just continuing the activism for equality in the country. Yeah. Um, other things to note is that in 2018, Iceland became the first country in the world to make it illegal to pay men more than women for the same job. Uh, and today they are regarded as one of the most progressive countries in terms of gender equality and has topped the World Economic Forum's Gender Gap Index 14 years in a row. So yay to Iceland. Yeah, and I think one of the great things is is that the, the, that the Prime Minister joined in. Like it really shows a lot that that such a senior person was like, I'm doing it too. And this wasn't just like, as you mentioned, you know, and I, I think it's worth highlighting again, it's not just about work. It's, it's specifically about unpaid work, like the amount of, because it was, it was all women putting down all tools. And the idea was, I'm not doing housework yeah. today. I'm not, I'm not, you know, all, the, all these things that women do for free, Gen- generally women do for free. Yeah. Um, it was about all of that and i think that's a it's a it's a really important thing that you get someone like her saying i'm with you and and the the impact that that has yeah there's also a lot of um correlation that's been kind of spotted between like if you view women's work as less actually violence towards women increases there's a kind of a correlation between the two so the fact that they're calling out the systemic waste discrimination and also gender-based violence is because they're starting to spot that there's actually like when you devalue women's work, you devalue women. And so like they're trying to also bridge that gap. Um, I mean, that's smaller. And then also the fact uh, the prime minister kept referencing the fact that, you know, as far I forgot who was it was I've got the UN in my head. The UN had basically quoted that we're not going to reach gender equality for 300 years. And so, you know, for her, it's like we're not moving fast enough and she wants to basically reach um, gender pay equality by 20 uh, by 2030 so that's really important for her that's on her agenda so yeah it's um you're absolutely right she's leading from the front that's great that's i mean uh, i i would love the idea of uh any country having gender pay equal pay equality among genders um by 2030 but isn't the sort of uh, I, I, it's been coming up on instagram quite a lot recently i'm sure it's the sort of standard amount is 108 years is what they're saying at this rate, the rate we're going at. I don't know whether that's worldwide or whether that's America because it's often American people, but I'm sure it's about 108 years or something. So 2030, that's quite a, that's quite a uh, a statement. It'd be incredible to see. Yeah. And it's worth noting, obviously Iceland have done huge amounts more than most other countries around the world. So they are further ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, But the fact that they're still protesting 48 years after that first protest suggest that you know like we can't afford to sit still because you know it's just it's not progressing fast enough without that continued uh, momentum behind it so and again it's just a good reminder isn't it that like these are rights which are which are one but i don't like the language one because actually someone decided at some point that we we don't deserve them so actually we're just claiming them back rather than winning anything so like i think the language around that is actually really important um but yeah no it was uh great to see Iceland doing it i hope we start to see similar things and that's it. That's the second day of feminism. Amazing. I still can't fit it in on the third day of feminism. 
Unfair respect, Gabe, to you. I was, I, I, I realised right at the beginning of this, I was like, why didn't we try and make a song? Because my entire time researching would have been trying to make a song. That's, that's what it would have been. So, okay, so third, third day. I thought you guys prefer the news. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, rather than the song. Um, I mean, it would have been. I'm sure it would have been fun. Maybe we'll do you in, a night before Christmas feminism style. Uh, I, I've done that a few times at work. I'll see what I can come up with for uh, the 24th. Um, so uh, the next one is um, we've done a lot of um, episodes this year on women's sports. When I say this year, actually, we've done two. Maybe we've done two. We've done three altogether. Um, but uh, this really, really can't be ignored that across women's sports, there's been record attendance and viewership of women's sports. And um, and it seems to be just rising, rising and rising. So uh, two other ones, aside from what we've already previously discovered around uh, or discussed around um, women's football. Um, so rugby women's six, rugby women's six nations and the golf si- Solheim. I think it's Solheim. Solheim Cup both broke viewership records in the UK this year. Um, and what's uh, what's great is there seems to be some unique viewing happening as well. So um, huge numbers of uh, people are watching the women's games and not watching the men's games. So um, 9.5 million hours were watched of the Solheim Cup with 33% of its audience not watching the male equivalent and of the Ryder Cup. And I'm not saying we don't want people to watch men's sport. That's not, that's, it's not an either or. But I think it's really interesting that some people are choosing to watch women's games over men's. And that's a, that's quite nice. Um, And they're saying that the, so the, the golf association says that that basically indicated that, um, you know, there's a really unique audience for, for women's competitions and how it's bringing in a whole new range of audiences. Um, Previous viewing figures were, were 6.3 million hours. So it's gone up by 3 million hours, which is, is incredible. Uh, The women's six nations in rugby also broke its viewership record in the UK with 10 point I, I didn't know it was done in hours but yeah with 10.4 million viewing hours <laughs> on TV were were clocked up um, which broke the previous record of 7.7 million hours um, it's also predicted that the global mm. revenue generated by elite women's sport is it's predicted to go uh, above 1 billion pounds for the first time next year um, which uh, I, I can't remember where I saw it, but I'm sure I read somewhere that three or four years ago, um, it was predicted that women's sport would never get to a billion. So it's it's just rocketed. Um, with the cricket, 150,000 viewers watched every single game of the Women's T20 World Cup. The tournament had 7. 1.1 million viewers viewing hours which is up by nearly one and a half million than the previous time in, in 2018 and then in america this this blows my mind that collegiate any collegiate sport gets this number of viewers but the women's national collegiate athletic association tournament drew nearly 10 million viewers for their final game uh, which was up 103 percent from the previous year so like completely 
yeah, just unbelievable. And then the WNBA draft audience, so when they pick players, increased by 42% between 2022 and 2023 yeah. um, and was up by 89% when it came to wow. women viewers. So a massive amount of women decided to tune in. Um, yeah. And then the Women's Super League, the in, the interest in the Women's Super League increased by 81% from the previous year. Um, and also uh, 41% of the global population was said to be excited about the Women's World Cup, which again, even if they didn't watch it, saying, oh, I'm, I'm excited about, yeah. about this, which uh, was an increase from 34% from the 2019. Like it's just in, in every single area, women's sport is going through the roof when it comes to viewership. And it's largely being led by women ages 35 and up. But um, there's been some um, some things to suggest that uh, young men are starting to look to women's sports. Um, so rather than young yeah. men watching men's sports, there's um, a, an increase in young younger fans and male fans watching women's sports instead so yeah it's the young men and 35 plus women which yeah it's just awesome and um obviously yeah you can't be it if you can't see it and all of that stuff and the fact that we can now find women's sports on telly it's still harder than men's sports but it's there like it used to be you had to kind of like hunt in you know at one o'clock in the morning on channel five or something and now it's now it's everywhere (laughs) and that's that's fabulous there's always, it's, it's always going to make a difference, right? Because availability is always going to help with our mm. kind of pulling that audience. Um, but also, I think it's just about like we're, we're talking about it a lot more, and it's it's no longer deemed ridiculous again to support a girls' team because mm. uh, we're starting to see actually the athleticism behind female athletes, and not just the fact that you know they're silly girls trying to, to play a game mm-hmm. that wasn't designed for them. Like I, I think that narrative is slowing down a little bit. Um, and again, I don't really watch football, but even I know the score of the England versus Scotland game from a few. Mm-hmm. Weeks ago, a week ago, couldn't tell you what tournament they were in, but I know that obviously they it meant that we England didn't get into uh, into the Olympics. Um, so yeah, it's definitely becoming much more mainstream. Right? You're not having to go out and search for it; like the news is coming to us. And the fact that I think people are starting to take an interest now, and also individual athletes, in the same way that you know people would have followed Michael Jordan's career or you know Messi. Um, oh my god, like David Beckham's career, you know, like I think people are now also starting to pick up the names of some female athletes and actually yeah, are like uh, finding them interesting to follow. So I think that also helps the fact that probably social media allows them to platform themselves in a way that they're not fully reliant on brands in the way that they would have been before or TV rights. Um, so hopefully a combination of all of them. Yeah. And, you know, as we know, with all of these... With all these things, there's there's a way to go, you know, and and it's it's shit yeah. that women were so far behind for so long. But those numbers don't don't lie, and it's it's amazing that, and I, I love it that suddenly there's a variety of different sports we can watch, and not just men but women too. Over to you for number four. Uh, I'm also really excited. Oh, yeah. Because the next one actually works a little bit, I think. So we're on uh, four Nobel Prizes. Nice. That kind of fits. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So 2023 proved to be a record year for women in the Nobel Prizes season. Since the first Nobel Prizes were awarded in 1901, women have won only five out of 225 physics prizes, three out of the 93 economics prizes and 13 out of the 227 medicine prizes. 
In total, 65 women have won prizes since 1901, representing only 6.7% of the total number awarded. But the numbers have been on the rise since the early 2020s, and this year we saw almost half, 47%, of the Nobel Prizes going to women. And the reasons apparently why this was so notable is that some of these prizes went to only women. So some of them are joint prizes, but actually some of them have ended up going to a single person. And that's why that's such a big thing, because often a woman has contributed rather than or co like co-owned a bit of work where um, two of the prizes here have gone to just women and they were in much um, much more masculine fields or uh, traditionally known seen as more masculine fields so an uh, example of that is Claudia Golden was awarded the 2023 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for having advanced our understanding of women's labour market outcomes the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences explained that Golden provided the first comprehensive account of women's earnings and labour market participation through the centuries her research reveals the causes of change as well as the main sources of the remaining gender gap so, and actually, we're going to drop a link. So if you wanted to read her research, you're welcome to do so. There's uh, there's links to that. Um, others to win, you've got French-Swedish uh, physicist Anne-Lou Hillier, who shared the physics prize, and Hungary's Kathleen Carico, who was awarded the medicine prize alongside American Drew Weissman. And last but certainly not least is Iranian rights activist and former vice president of the Defenders of the Human Rights Centre, the DHRC, Najas Mohammadi, who won the Peace Prize. Now, she has faced numerous arrests and spent years in jail campaigning against the oppression of women and violence towards women. And more recently, Mohammed I was placed behind bars for the recent protests over the death of 22-year-old Massa Aminai, who, um, when, when she was in police custody. Mm-hmm. Uh, for behind bars, Mohammadi con- uh, contributed an opinion piece for the New York Times, writing, what the government may not understand is that the more of us they lock up, the stronger we become. Now, in the words of the Nobel Committee, this prize is first, the Peace Peace Prize, is first and foremost a recognition of the very important work of a whole movement in Iran and its undisputed leader, Nargis Mohammadai. So, yeah, really big year. Um, Again, I think a lot of reasons why we've been kept out of them for so long is because we've been kept out of work for so long. Women have been kept out of actually having our contributions noted and celebrated. Um, a lot of fun fact Marie Curie was the first laureate in 1903 and she is to this day the only woman to have received two Nobel Prizes uh, first of physics in 1903 and then in 1911 she won the prize for chemistry so there we go awesome four Nobel Prizes did um, did Marie Curie win the first one with her brother or husband or don't know i can't remember whether that was a joint one or not i know i'm pretty sure she won one on her own but i think she might have won one as a joint one you're asking you're asking a good question (laughs) it was her and pierre were awarded the Nobel prize for physics jointly with henry burkwell for their combined though separate work on radioactivity so that was in Mm -hmm. 1903 yeah um she actually apparently passed her doc uh doctorate thesis in physics in the same year wow that's amazing There can't have been many clever, women clever who were doing doctorates at that point. This is what like, this you know, is. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, 1903. Yeah. And then, I mean, this is, what blo- this is what really kind of frustrates me about this sort of stuff is like, yes, this is brilliant news and 47% in this year's run-ins is, is great. But it's just like, how many more would we, these would we have dominated if we'd actually been allowed to do Joe the fucking work and actually have our names... Yeah. Go to university, actually have our names written on the research papers that we were supporting. You know, yeah. there's... Um, 
There's a thing the other day, apparently Einstein's wife was equally as as brilliant as science, you know, mm. and possibly helped supported him on some of the stuff that he created, so or he discovered. Um and we know that about authors and stuff like that. You, you, we just yeah. know that there's been contributions by women throughout history that just have been completely unmarked. So, do, um, do we know what Einstein's wife's called? Oh my goodness! So passing I'm find good it. questions. I'm sorry, you know? because <laughs> now we've said Einstein's wife. I don't want to just call her Einstein's wife. Her name uh, was Mileva Marek, maybe. You're absolutely right. He had, he had two spouses, but it was um, Mileva who he married in 1903. Yeah, she was a, Serbi- a Serbian physicist and mathematician. Well, we might have to do a bit of bit of research on her. Clever cookies. Oh well, so Einstein. Sorry, I'm just I'm just reading a bit. Apparently, Einstein gave a portion of his 1921 Nobel Peace Prize winnings to support her. I assume that's after they'd got divorced. Um, I don't know whether that's because she helped him or not, but I I suppose. I, Listen, we're learning with you. We're we don't know if if any of you if any of you know anything about um about Einstein's wife Mileva Marek, please tell us, and um we'll we'll tell everyone else. <laughs> Sorry for that brief detour. Um, right, number five. 75 anniversaries Mm, doesn't work it's the 75th anniversary (laughs) of universal declaration of human rights i wasn't sure about this being one of the 12 days of feminism so like is it something that we need to be putting on it but uh so i'll just give a bit of a history and then i and then i'll explain why I i thought it was probably good for it to be on there so on 10th of december 1948 the general assembly of the un announced to announce the universal declaration of human rights which provided 30 rights and freedoms that belong to all of us. The rights continue to form the basis for all international human rights law. And it's considered to be one of the most important memorandum of civil liberties. Um, and uh, this document was set just after po- just after the Second World War. So one of the reasons that I thought that this is, I mean, clearly human rights, very, very important, does a lot for women. But actually, what I wanted to point out here is the role that women played in shaping the document and right from its inception. So we've got Eleanor Roosevelt, um, who was one of the most prominent women on draft around uh, drafting uh, in the drafting committee. She regarded her role in crafting and securing the adoption of the declaration as one of her greatest achievements. Um, She was really outspoken when it came to human rights and had a real um, like passion for this and wanted to make sure that the world wasn't divided when it came to um, issues of human rights. But there were also, she, Eleanor Roosevelt is kind of seen as one of the big people that, that did this, but a lot of the non-Western people are often forgotten. So I wanted to highlight some of them and the people, that, the, the women who uh, really played a big part in um, drafting and securing the Declaration of Human Rights. So... Uh, we have Hansen Mehta, who was a delegate to the UN Commission on Human Rights between 1947 and 1948. She was a staunch fighter for women's rights in India and abroad. Um, she's widely credited with making a significant change in the language of Article 1 by replacing the phrase all men are born free and equal to all human beings are born free and equal, uh, which obviously Quite an makes important a big difference. Yes. 
Uh, we then have Minerva Bernardino, uh, who was from the Dominican Republic and was one of the signers of the uh, declaration in 1948. She was a diplomat and a leader in the feminist movement in Latin America. And she was behind the founding of the UN Commission on the Status of Women. Uh, for the declaration, she pushed for including the phrase equality of men and women in the preamble, among other changes. So along with the all human beings born equal, she pushed for men and women being uh, both called out. And then we have Begum Shaster Ikramula. Uh, who was a delegate to the UN Third Committee for Pakistan. Um, and her, wo her work on the declaration was an extension of her deeply held religious, political and social beliefs. Uh, she was a member of the first parliament of the newly independent Pakistan and she pushed her articles and, the lang and language in the declaration that emphasised freedom, equality and choice. And in particular, she champions uh, the inclusion of Article 16, which was around equal rights in marriage, uh, which then later saw... Um, a way to stop child marriage and forced marriage um so clearly there are many many principles around um freedom of expression freedom of assembly freedom right to demonstrate freedom of association right to organize whether um for trade unions political parties and various other things that are being violated all around the world at the moment and so as ellie said right at the beginning we don't want to forget that that stuff is still going on but the fact that we still have this declaration in place, that there are, I believe, is it 150, I think 150 states around the world that are signed up to this. Um, it's a really positive thing and it could have been, you know, just got rid of and thrown aside. But it is still there. It is still doing good. And there are some amazing women to look at through history who really played a massive part in where we've got to when it comes to how the declaration affects women and girls uh, around the world. And I think that's a really good point. You know, like one of the news stories that came out this week was obviously the US veto in the UN resolution calling for immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And actually a lot of people have turned around and been like, you know, when you're on the, the other side of the UN, you're probably on the wrong side of the of the fight, or you're on the wrong side of history. Um, so I think, yeah, absolutely we are acknowledging the fact that these things don't always work and that there are countries who are always going to act in their best interest but I think the fact that we've got 150 countries who have signed up to this it's reached a 75th anniversary for me suggests that there are still a substantial amount of people who believe in it and want to follow its principles um and so the the optimist in me is hoping that these sort of things will prevail and will hopefully help all countries kind of take those steps forward for equality and maybe even help Iceland reach its 2030 target who knows who knows? Numero six. On the sixth day of Christmas, we have period products tested with actual human blood for the first time ever. Yes, you have had oh, that right. Fuck me, what on earth? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll turn to a song later of like, you know, six blood tested tampons um the uh, before 2023 the absorbency of period products were tested with either saline which is like salted water or just water alone um and let's be honest they're not even close remotely comparable to menstrual blood which is thicker than water substantially thicker than water and contains mucus and endometrial tissues and other sacraments you know from the, from the system so like the fact that they thought they could get away with this and they have got away with this for so long is just my mind mind blowing i mean there's literally a phrase blood is thicker than water 
Oh, beautiful. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so a study published in the journal BMJ Sexual and Reproductive Health on the 7th of August 2023 is the first ever to compare absorption levels of menstrual products, including tampons, pads, cups and menstrual discs. Do you know what a menstrual disc is? I've got no idea. Do you? Oh, there we go. I'm, I'm so looking. Apparently they are most effective for heavier, um, heavier face, but it's the first time I've heard of them. Um, so this journal basically ran its uh, test using human blood for the first time. Uh, instead of actual menstrual blood, which is apparently really hard to obtain for scientific testing, researchers used uh, blood packed with red blood cells. So it kind of kind of gave the consistency of, but obviously wasn't the same as menstrual blood. Um, and they said basically like testing products this way will not only lead to products that are properly designed for the reality of menstruation, but they'll also help healthcare providers gain a more accurate assessment if heavy bleeding is a concern. Because at the moment, obviously, you're using your pads and your products as a identifier about how many you're using in a month. Um, but obviously, if they're not being designed for proper absorption, then obviously they're not giving you accurate readings anyway. Um, as menstrual uh, equity charity Bloody Good Period notes, the fact that period product absorbency has only just started to be tested with actual blood shows just how far we have to go when it comes to menstrual health, bodily education and period normalisation. Period blood in adverts has long been shrouded in secrecy and shame through the use of blue blood. And the fact this is reflected right back to the product testing phase highlights the deep-seated stigma and miseducation that exists around periods. It's also a real big concern for me that, you know, companies have been able to release products to market that haven't been tested properly for their primary use. And in effect, they're using women as their fucking guinea pigs. Like, that's not that's not acceptable. And also, mm. fuck you to Tampax, right? Because when you've got those really heavy periods and they leak through, pants are fucking expensive. And the fact that we are still paying tax on our fucking tampons and, and sanitary products, despite the fact it was abolished in 2021, um, news is actually apparently that these, these companies never passed that on to us. So women are still paying an markup they're still paying a markup on their products because the businesses have been pocketing that at five percent i think the most they've ever given us back is one percent so the bastards are not only pocketing the difference but they're also making us pay for fucking pants that you know we bleed into because their products aren't designed or tested properly for their actual function well i i've just i've just been learning about menstrual discs so and bear in mind again like we're we're not medical professionals. I've literally just spent two minutes Googling this. Uh, so a menstrual disc is like a menstrual cup. It is being marketed as the um, like the contender again, like to menstrual cups. Um, it's insertable and can last up to twelve hours, of, um, even if you're even if you've got a heavy flow. Um, it says uh, it says that. Um, menstrual cups look like cups and menstrual discs look like discs and i assume it means like a frisbee type thing because i can't find a picture of one um a cup sits in your vagina below your cervix and extends into the canal depending on the type or brand you choose a disc on the other hand fits back into your vaginal fornix which is where your vaginal canal meets your cervix so apparently it collects more blood is comfier and you can have sex while you wear it. What? It says menstrual tip. This is great. Menstrual discs don't take up any real estate in your vaginal canal, making it an ideal option for period sex. They sit at the base of your cervix, just like a diaphragm. So as long as it's inserted properly, you and your partner shouldn't be able to feel it. 
<laughs> this then says, so this is on healthline.com. That said, a particularly deep or enthusiastic sex sesh could cause it to shift. <laughs> Based on user reviews, two popular menstrual discs, some people do report feeling the disc and having experienced some leakage during sex. I mean... It's so yeah. Apparently, it's a it's a version of a menstrual cup that's designed for heavier flow and for longer protection, um, which has got to be positive, right? Oh, now I found a little disc. I yeah. now I see it. It looks like <laughs> it looks like a long, like an oblong, closed up condom. So before a condom's open, oh wow, it's yeah, like an oblong closed up condom. I mean, it's probably why these were disc rather than oblong condom. I feel like they're probably yeah, the sales are probably going to be higher tell, with a disc. No. Yeah. But there, there we go. That now we but know. On Christmas sex, though, that's the that's the pitch. Christmas sex, you know. <laughs> so not only are they designing better products for us because they're now finally testing it with the right fucking material, but also uh, you get to have a bit of hanky panky over the Christmas season. Yeah. Period or no period. There we go. I've got, I'm sorry, I've got one more picture. The cup looks like a funnel. The disc looks, oh, the, okay, not an oblong, not an oblong condom. You remember those things that you, <laughs> uh, those toys when you were a kid that you turn inside out and then they pop? It was like a little semicircle and you could turn it inside uh... out and then it would pop up. That's <laughs> <laughs> what it looks like. It looks, or, or like a Tannock's tea cake. It looks like a Tannock's tea cake. That kind of shape. What I'm going to say is, don't, don't join their marketing team. I think. I yeah, think. And don't put a tannix tea cake inside yeah. yourself. Don't ever do that. Like, yeah, we're not health professionals, but like, definitely follow that right, advice. Do that. <laughs> so there we go. That's all you need to know about all everything you ever needed to know uh, about a menstrual disc from Rhiannon. And on to number seven. On to number seven. Where are we heading? <laughs> We're heading to cervical cancer, but it's good news about cervical cancer. So a new cervical cancer trial has been hailed as one of the most remarkable studies that has happened in the last 20 years um, and has offered a reduction of in death rate of up to 35%. Um, and it's using drugs that were already on the market. So... What they've done is they've got a drug that was already used, but they've they've worked out that very specific timing around giving that drug um, could increase survival rates. So in a trial of 500 female patients aged between 26 and 72, scientists randomized them into two groups um, and then they either received the the chemo radiation therapy, which is the standard chemotherapy that that they get or they got the chemo with this specific drug um, at seven seven weeks into their therapy. Um, and at the end of a five-year follow-up, 80% of the women who received the combination drug and the radiotherapy were still alive. And, 73, and in 73%, the cancer had not returned. Um, and like I said, that's a 35% yeah. reduction in death than, than has previously um, been the case. Um, and... As I said, that's this is the biggest step forward in 20 years when it's come to cervical cancer, and uh, the prediction is that definitely alongside, celebration. yeah, alongside HPV vaccines, which are decreasing, they claim it's claimed that they're decreasing the rates of cervical cancer by up to 90%, like preventing cervical cancer by up to 90%. Um, so alongside wow. that, 
plus cervical smear tests, um, it's suggested that cervical yeah. cancer may be eliminated by 2040. Um, which Bloody hell. yeah is incredible because that's so good yeah. yeah teenagers boys and girls are having the HPV um, vaccination so if that's if that mm-hmm. is causing the majority of cervical cancer then if if teenagers are having it then it's going to be gone and then anyone who doesn't have it the cervical um, smear test should catch it or catch any abnormal cells or whatever. So, yeah, real, real celebratory moment. And I think when it comes to women's cancers generally, so there are still issues around women's cancer. And and I say women's cancer because it uh, obviously men can get breast cancer, um, but um, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, breast cancer, they still continue to be missed. Breast cancer there's a, has had huge amounts of progress and um, the risk of dying from breast cancer in um, has decreased massively so um this year it went down the it's fallen from 14 percent chance of dying uh to five percent chance of dying if you've had if you've had breast cancer within five five years of having it your chance just plummets now and so that is from the mid 1990s um so in the last 30 years 20 25 30 years the rates have really really dropped so it just shows like the cancer research and what's being done is is amazing um ovarian cancer is still an Mm. issue but it's because it's a silent killer and and they haven't really figured out how to hunt for it until it's too late um but yeah i i think this in particular like managing to discover that a drug that was already on the market was already being used but if it's used in a very specific very specific point of your therapy just massively changes your prognosis it's just incredible like medicine's amazing that's huge news that's really really great news uh yeah absolutely deserves to be on this uh, 12 days of feminism list yeah i think yeah like i said i just it really blows my mind yeah, but ovarian cancer being a cyclic killing and hopefully that starts to change the more we take women's symptoms around their menopause and their endometrius and their their menstrual cycles. Like when we start taking that a bit more seriously, mm. hopefully we'll be able to start spotting these things a bit sooner because it won't, you know, they would just drot it down as like, oh, it's just, you know, period cramps. It's actually yeah. all this other stuff going on here. It is amazing. Like all the time people are discovering new things about the drugs that we already have available. Um, I mean, when it comes to ovarian cancer, yeah. it's it's really hard. I mean, I... I um. I don't know if it did it end up in the podcast. I think it did. Um, so my my mum having ovarian cancer. Um, I asked the doctors whether um, I asked the doctors whether now that she's got ovarian cancer, is there anything that will happen for me? Like, will like if your mum has breast cancer, you're more likely to get mammograms early. Mm. And they basically said no. And I was just like, what? like i don't really understand so obviously if you if you have the BRCA gene which is the the gene that means you could inherit um breast or ovarian cancer um and your your chances of getting those go up massively at that point there's all sorts of um preventative surgery you could have and and things but if you have any cancer in your family you're more likely to get cancer and so i thought well maybe there'll be something and they just said no they they did say to me if um if I have menstrual problems, then they might consider doing more invasive, more in-depth scans and tests and things. Um, but yeah, I was just quite yeah. surprised because it is such a silent killer. Yeah. Joe and I were at the hospital the other day and we were talking, he was uh, talking about like Joe's age and that he might then suddenly get you know tested for certain cancers. And I said, just out of interest, you know, like what is the age and like what kind of 
cancers are you searching for are you looking for and apparently like men don't start getting screened until they're in their 50s and it's yeah. generally for, for again cancer. things which are yeah but m- mostly if they're showing symptoms so like women obviously get cervical screenings from the age of 25 pretty regularly um yeah. whereas it like you know the from the the doctor um he was basically saying that yeah men, men basically it starts at start until they're in their 50s and generally it's it's based on symptoms rather than um regular screening so i i was surprised as well to... i had no idea i thought that when it got when men got to 50 I, I didn't know exactly what age it was but i knew it was around 50 i thought prostate screening was standard um i mean maybe it's not the reason it's not done so regularly is because it's a contested thing within the nhs as to what the benefit yep. is versus the cost and so actually the reason that they don't do it as routinely as they would do a cervical cancer is because for men there's like misdiagnosis and generally the the positives of it don't outweigh the cost of it yeah Um, and actually with prostate cancer from what I understand of it you can live with prostate cancer for a very 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 long time so I've had members of my family who've had prostate cancer for 20 years and they've died from something else um Ian McKellen's had it for like 20 years I'm pretty certain so maybe it's one of those things it's like actually is it is it worth because then you've got to keep going back for tests you've got to keep which you want to do like so but I can understand where the NHS are coming from if they have to keep testing if they have to keep providing some kind of treatment for something that actually isn't going to kill someone or have an effect on their life is it is it important to do but it's still like it's it's really hard because clearly the NHS have a have a bit of a cost benefit risk analysis to weigh up and but but you know if yeah. i i want i want my the men around me to be safe and tested and stuff in is in i'm sure the same way that they want us to be tested um so yeah it's tough really really yeah. tough yeah and the fact that most men will get diagnosed further along in their cancer mm. stages because they're not going to the doctors regularly anyway for me it just feels really weird that we would discourage men from kind of going to get screenings mm. or kind of have that kind of preventative care that seems to be afforded to to women in certain areas and all areas but certain areas um but can we just please put our hands up and say like we are not medical professionals so like everything we've just said has been things we've been be reading bullshit. but like always check with your doctor <laughs> It could, I, I, we don't want it to be a BS, but um, yeah, like, just like, just if you're concerned about anything, talk to a doctor, do not listen to this, like, like don't yeah. take us as gospel. Um, we don't but, want you to but be doing also, that. also, men listening to the podcast, go get your butts and your balls checked. Just, it's worth it. Just, just go and get, just get your butts and balls checked. Yeah. All right. Number eight. Number eight. Um, we are, we are, it's gone a bit sad for a while, but I promise she does come back up again, okay? Um, so number eight, a woman has been convicted of taking a British girl, uh, aged three at the time, uh, for female genitalia mutilation in Kenya. So on the 16th of October, 2023, Amina Noor was convicted of assisting a Kenyan woman to carry out the mutilation of a female genitalia of a British citizen overseas back in 2006. And that's also, that took nine Seven. That took seven years to kind of get um, a conviction in court. Uh, the conviction, which carries a maximum sentence of 14 years, is the first for assisting in such harm under the Female Genital Mutilation Act of 2023. Now, the senior Crown Prosecutor, Patricia Strobino, 
hailed Noor's conviction, saying this kind of case will hopefully encourage potential victims and survivors of FGM to come forward, safe in the knowledge that they are supported, believed and are also able to speak their truth about what's actually happened to them. She adds, part of the challenge of this type of offence is the fact that these types of offences occur in secrecy within specific within specific communities within the UK. Although these offences and practices are prevalent, it is often very difficult to get individuals to come forward to explain the circumstances of what's happened to them because there was a fear that they may be excluded or pushed away or shunned, isolated from their community. And actually, um, that is one of the biggest issues about this because it's considered a cultural tradition. Um, a lot of people don't see harm in it because it's kind of happened before and it's come from somewhere. Obviously, us on this podcast completely disagree with that. I think many in the UK, obviously the UK have now got, um, or since 2003, have had the Female um, Genital Mutilation Act. So like we are strongly against this. And so actually having something like this come through the British courts as a um, as a judgment sets a precedent that we're actually not going to uh, allow it to happen on UK soil, but we're also not going to allow it to happen for UK citizens to be sent abroad to have it done either. Um, so I think that's what they were kind of celebrating in that sense, that actually what this represents is that the law is is not only in place, but it's being used and it's successfully um, convicting people who are breaking the law um, in this area. Uh, a few facts around FGM, um, just to lighten the mood, because I think we were a bit too jolly for a second there. Rhiannon, um, it is practiced in 28 countries in Africa and some in the Middle East and Asia. The World Health Organization estimates that 3 million girls undergo some form of the procedure every year in Africa alone, with more than 200 million girls and women alive today having undergone female genital mutilation. Hundreds of thousands of women and girls are affected by it within the England and Wales. So this is not a foreign problem. This is very much a problem that happens um, within England. So hopefully... With this case, which is a good news story, um, we will start to see this being taken more seriously and hopefully, um, yeah, we'll hopefully, like, in, we'll hopefully give teachers and people who are caring for these children mm. the support that they need and the knowledge that they need that they can bring this sort of stuff forward and that they'll, um, it will lead to something uh, positive. Yeah, I uh, just, I find the whole, I don't, I, I don't I just can't get my head around anyone it's a, it's another topic and we shouldn't talk about it when we're celebrating um I just can't get my head around um anyone who wishes to do it I mean I feel the same about circumcision um however while I think circumcision is horrific as well um the mostly the long-term effects of circumcision do not have the same long-term effects as as FGM for people who don't really know what FGM is, it can be so many different things from cutting off their clitoris to cutting their labia to sewing them up in to some extent. And it can lead to yeah. like a lack of the ability to have sex, to have a baby, to, um, you know, even you menstruational, know, be able to, problems. menstruation problems, be able to go for a wee, like so many things. Yeah. And it's just horrendous. And I just don't understand. Um, but yeah, obviously I'm pleased that there's, you know, there is still a push to try and stop it. As you said, not just this isn't happening in the UK, but it's not happening to UK citizens. Um, and just while we're at it, the, yeah. um, there's a group that I follow on um, Instagram called the Vavengers, Um And they are a survivor led organization who stand with and for women who are affected by FDM. 
or cutting and other forms of violence um and um they do a lot of really good stuff and i've uh, a lot of what they post is really interesting and um yeah they're a relatively new group like in the yeah they've been growing in the last few years and um they seem to do a lot of really really good work so um go and have a look at them um and uh, there's all sorts of ways you can support women in that situation um yeah cool Okay. Right, we need to pick it back up again now. <laughs> Something a little happier. So, uh, targets for FTSE 350 leadership roles were met early. So, we could argue that... Hang on, uh, what number are we on? I don't know. The nine, ninth day of ninth feminism. Day of feminism. <laughs> I'm sorry. The ninth day of feminism. Targets for the FTSE 350 leadership roles were met early. So, we could argue that, that the still, and we have and will at later dates argue there are still lots and lots of problems when it comes to issues around gender pay gap between about inequalities around parental leave expectations on women and how they're treated at work and etc etc however we're celebrating so um in uh so the plan was <laughs> we're forcing ourselves to celebrate we are we're <laughs> celebrating bring me some jingle bells and some champagne um so <laughs> FTSE 350 companies were set a deadline by 2025 that they were to achieve a 40% target of women in leadership roles. Um, and that was um, that has been hit three years early. So while it was a target, it was voluntary. Um, but the, the, the fact really is, is that although it was voluntary, they only they only had to do it by 2025 and they've managed to do it by now. So that's pretty good. Um, just over a decade, a decade ago, 152 of the 350 listed firms had no women on the board at all. So the fact that we're now up to 40 percent now and and three years ahead of target or yeah two two and a half three years ahead of target is pretty bloody great um and yes as i said we've got a way to go um and uh a lot of the stories uh around this then say women do only then hold 33.5 percent of leadership leadership roles below board level however it is all right. progress. And again, as I said earlier, if you can't see it, you can't be it. That's always the case. Having women on the board will result in more women being on the board later. There will Women will move through organisations, will see women up there, will know that it's possible, will have people that, that, that can mm-hmm. mentor them. Um, and uh, and that's got to be positive. And clearly, we want it to we want it to be higher than forty percent. It'd be great if if, if it was fifty percent, or you know, as RBG said, mm-hmm. when there were nine. Um, so you know we'll keep pushing just keep pushing um but it is a really positive yeah. news story um and uh yeah something that that ultimately these companies didn't have to do now they could have they could have gone oh, no. you know it's 2020 it's july 2024 shall we get on with this or maybe even gone it's july 2025 we've got we've got six months to get this done by the end of 2025 shall we see what we can do um and then make a bunch of excuses but they haven't so I ultimately think it's positive um, and uh, yeah, just hope that it will continue in that direction. 
Yeah, I also think like, you know, it's not just that you can see people above you as you can, you know, see it to be it. There's also the fact that, you know, if you've got women in these rooms where there are decisions being made, back to RPG, like generally they're going to start making policies that actually end up working for more women. So generally you're going to be paving the way. It's not just the fact that like you can see that person up there. Hopefully that will trickle down in terms of like we're actually going to start bringing in policies and making the culture less of a, you know, a boys club and much more... Uh, inclusive of, of the workers that we have here and a bit more representative of again like sort of people that you're building products for or that you're yeah. you know your your clientele is and all that kind of stuff so um i think there's huge benefits and it just cracks me up obviously that boris johnson was on record this week saying that you know his cabinet didn't have enough um, gender equality in it when they were making decisions around covid and like you know he puts a lot of blame on that and absolutely he's using that as a scapegoat so he doesn't have to talk about other stuff so i'm not you know his, i'm not taking his cabinet it, but... his cabinet didn't have enough women. Yeah. The cabinet that he chose. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I you mean, can't scapegoat like, that is, shit. Yeah. Like, come on. Come on, Boris. So this is like a point, but the fact even our own Prime Minister is, is you know, recognising the the shortfalls that we have when we're not bringing um, much more of a gender balance into these rooms. So yeah, I think it's a yeah. massive massive thing to celebrate the fact that we're ahead of time that people are starting to see that it's not just about a 50 50 split because it looks nice on paper there's actual benefits to this um and yeah hopefully it starts like you know again like we were talking about paternity ages ago but when you start actually bringing paternity policies in you're going to start making it a much fairer mm-hmm. battleground for men and women working you know you're going to stop hopefully women getting a, the bloody motherhood penalty tax for kind of going home and having children so I'm going home and having children. Going home. <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying. So, I know what you're saying. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that for me is just like a really important thing. And like the whole time that you have men, like again, there's this petition that I shared and it makes me so sad that the Fatherhood Institute put out a petition to try and get six weeks at 90% pay for new fathers. It's had less than 7,000 7, votes last time I checked. It needs at least 10,000 for it to be taken seriously by Parliament. It needs 100,000 signatures for it to get debated. Um, I was about to say, not even Parliament. taken seriously, just to be looked at. It's just to be like, looked at. Like you said, the 100,000 is for it to be debated. But yeah, 7,000 people sign it. Yeah. And as uh, we, we were discuss- actually, we were discussing it before before the episode started. So sorry if this was a bit confusing for, for listeners. Um, I think I think <laughs> we were discussing it before we started. Um, and um, and yeah, and that's as you say, that's the point. If if men get a better have a better situation when it comes to share parental leave and paternity leave, then women win like we we win as well but it it will make things more equal um so you know Mm -hmm. we should be signing those petitions like it's everyone should be signing those petitions i mean can you imagine like when when men got two weeks off like that was seen as you know everyone was like oh my god men now get two weeks off but people now i've i've got friends and family that have had babies and said you know two weeks just isn't enough like i need them around for longer like it's hard yep so we're also going to uh, drop a link to the um, petition. Sign it. Like, like, let's actually get this like debated by our UK government. Let them have a freaking conversation about it. Because at the moment, it's just being like pushed into a corner, and everyone's like having chats about like what more we can be doing. This is what we can be doing as as individuals in the UK. We can be signing petitions and getting our UK government to actually start taking the concerns that we have more seriously. Couldn't agree more. Number 10. All right. Where were we? Number 10. Number, Number 10. 
Number 10. Yeah, okay. You can just keep saying that for the rest of the episode. Just keep number 10. (laughs) Probably number 10. Might be number 10. Okay, so on the 10th day of feminism, I'm going to take us back to the 1st of March when German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbach launched a new feminist foreign policy guidelines that seeks to make gender equality and women's rights central objectives to Germany's external relations. Now, in its introduction, the guidelines say that they are pursuing feminist foreign policy because it is desperately necessary, because men and women are still not equal worldwide, because women as well as children and older people are particularly vulnerable during conflicts. Feminist foreign policy means that we do not just see particular vulnerabilities, but strategically tackle them, including in our project funding or humanitarian assistance. Feminist foreign policy thus seeks to achieve equality for women and girls worldwide. It tends to the particular concerns of marginalised groups. Feminist foreign policy seeks to achieve a world in which all human beings enjoy the same rights. It seeks to ensure their equal representation in all areas of life. It seeks to pave the way for them to have equal access to resources. It seeks to harness the fact that women are agents of change and in senior positions propel societies forward and strengthen democracy. It seeks to achieve this for all people in equal measure. Now, for those who've been following us for a little while, this may sound a bit familiar. We spoke a lot about this in episode 22 with Christina Lunz, who is the co-founder of um, German Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy. And in that episode, we ended up talking through the four R's. Now, as far as I can see, the feminist foreign policy uh, that's been put in place this year um, in Germany follows three R's. And they mirror, or they build on the framework, uh, prime they build on the framework pioneered by Sweden under Margot Wallström's leadership in 2014. And Germany's uh, guidelines focus on the three overarching objectives, which is equal rights for women and girls, the equitable representation of women in all areas of society, and equal access to resources for women and girls. So in short, rights, representation, and resources, the three R's. If you are interested in learning a little bit more about this, I really recommend going back to listen to episode 22. Christina Lons is incredible, very articulate, kind of goes into more detail about what they're trying to achieve with feminism for us, feminist foreign policies um but some of the stuff i thought i'd just mention here is that you know to advance these objectives so to actually pull off what they've pulled together in the guidelines um the guidelines highlight three main areas of action one of those is gender mainstreaming second is gender budgeting and the third is internal diversity now whilst the intentions are good the gap between rhetorical and like policy commitments versus meaningful implementation you know has been a recurring point of critique for this but also any other country that's tried to put feminist foreign policies in place um and many actually cite the fact that it's really hard to define and measure progress in the implementation of policies such as this now they say that often when it comes to budgeting that's something that can be easily tracked but most other things um are less easy to do so they also say that navigating political resistance has also been flagged as a challenge um as well as how the feminist foreign policy fits into the broader shifts that Germany's foreign policy has kind of had over the last couple of years, uh, particularly the move towards higher defence spending. And we know from Christina Lund's episode that states which are much more patriarchal in their thinking tend to rely much more on war and conflict and defence, whereas those which are much more feminist in their thinking tend to build more into communities, into families, into uh, welfare and health. 
So yeah, Germany's not the only one doing this sort of thing. So again, they're not like they're one of the only ones at the moment to be um, tackling it, at, you know, at state level. But actually, you know, Glasgow is the first feminist in uh, first feminist city, obviously within the UK. But since then, we've also had Barcelona, and there's a town in Sweden as well called UMEA, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it because it sounds it's small but scary. Oh, no, I... Yeah, it's got a little um, two dots over the A as well. Mm. Una. Maybe. I don't want to insult anyone. So, um, but both of those have also, you know, uh, pledged to make changes to their cities as well in a much more feminist fashion. So, Germany's not alone here, and you know, hopefully, when we start to see that, as they said here, it's about making sure that women are. Uh, they're known for being agents of change. We've seen that throughout history. The reason that we are as far ahead as we are today is because women got up because you know and, and fought for their rights again you know they made sure that they they won some of those back again um so yeah recognizing that women are agents of change and then trying to strengthen the democracy that we have and the representation that we have at all levels of society um can only ever be a good thing and we're seeing this you know the countries that just don't have that and how quickly rights for marginalized groups are being lost and are being um attacked and so for me, this this will hopefully um, we'll see much more of this over the next 10 years. We have to because we can't see any less of it. I think that um, we're seeing too much of the, the result when we, we don't pay enough attention to this sort of thing. Definitely. And the thing that um, I remember being said in the podcast, um, both around feminist uh, cities, um, but also around feminist foreign policy is that, you know, having feminist city, something that focuses well, not focuses on, but considers uh, the female's point, a woman's point of view. The same with feminist foreign policy. It's a, it helps everybody. It isn't just about women. Yeah. It helps all groups in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and yeah, it's yeah. it's really really important. You just you you're, you're, all you're doing is considering every citizen that uses the space. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, you, you change things for women. You change things for everyone. Fabulous. On to the penultimate one, uh, our 11th day of feminism, uh, <laughs> reclaiming abortion rights in the USA. So, um, again, whoop, whoop, uh, we have um, on a number of occasions covered bits and pieces on abortion around the world uh, and specifically about Roe versus Wade. So, um, anti-abortion advocates scored a big win in 2022 when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, as some of you will I'm sure no. Uh, Roe v. Wade was a case um, which uh, the the outcome was that the the unduly restricting abortion uh, by the state is unconstitutional. Um, and then over the years, we have gone backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards in in the states. Um, following the, as I said, big win for the anti-abortion folks in uh, 2022, that luck has run out, which. Uh, again, it will not surprise any of you who listen to this. Is a po- we deem to be a positive. Um, so, and uh, abortion has been on the ballot in seven states since June 2022, um, both red and blue states. Um, and on every occasion, the anti-abortion groups have lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, all I can see is that 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 has to be positive that something is changing even in the red states um you know we're forever looking at issues of abortion in america women are having their rights taken away 
family planning clinics are being closed. Women and girls have to travel across state lines to go and get abortions. Um, and it's not safe and, um, and it's expensive and it's just putting people at danger in danger um it's also as we know you know the chances of backstreet abortions and dangerous situations coming up if you don't have access to that kind of health care is is horrendous so the fact that um it's come up seven times since june 2022 and every time the anti-abortionists have lost is really positive yeah. so this year in the uk or no not in the uk in england and wales in may um there was a new uh, law was passed around safe access zones to abortion clinics in in england and wales um which basically gave like a buffer zone um around abortion clinics or family healthcare clinics um to stop people from protesting outside, which uh, it meant that certain activities were not allowed to happen within 150 metres of the clinic. And that included reciting prayers, holding placards, reading from the Bible, or otherwise attempting to dissuade women from having terminations. So those safe access zones haven't actually been terribly useful in in, a, in most cases. Um, the Home Office are being criticised quite heavily for not properly policing it. But the fact that those laws came in in May is a positive um even if then some work to be done to actually make it make it happen and and make those laws land yeah. um it, it has to be a positive thing so you know women don't wi women don't go to get an abortion uh for contraception that's they're not they're, they're not thinking oh well you know if i get pregnant i can get an abortion that's that's not happening uh women go to get an abortion in the worst case scenario because you know because they're in a situation that they they can't or don't want to be in um so being red versus they're exercising their bodily or, autonomy or, to make a decision for exactly. themselves yeah exactly so being red versus from a bible or being yelled at or told you're evil or whatever else is like you're already going through a really horrible thing that you don't want to be going through uh, mm. whether that be pregnancy or termination or whatever like it's not okay so yeah I, I see these things as positive, still a way to go. The fact that these things are still coming up in in uh, are being put on the ballot, abortion is still being argued constantly in America. We're still having problems with these safe access zones in, in England and Wales. It is progress. It is, and I think it's made people stand up and again recognise that their rights are temporary. They can be removed, and I think that people are now much more prepared to go... Uh, and vote and make sure that their voices are being heard and that you know if they really care about these sort of topics that they're, they're making sure that their vote is counted towards this sort of stuff and as we're seeing you know when right. women do come out in numbers they are reclaiming those rights for their bodily autonomy back again um from people who thought that you know the uh, the overhaul of roe versus wade was was the end of that conversation and i think we're, we're proving that's not the you know the conversation and we're seeing a lot of court cases at the moment about women who have almost lost their lives, who've had their now um, uteruses removed because of complications, which would have been completely um, avoidable had they been allowed to have access to the healthcare uh, which abortions provide. So I think also we're going to keep seeing the legal landscape within the US uh, being targeted with very specific cases within the abortion um, debate, uh, because I think the law, again, I think the people who 
who believed that overturning Roe versus Wade was again at the end of the conversation they'd won. Like they just hadn't sat and thought about every single scenario that was now going to be affected. And women definitely are considering those scenarios because they're finding themselves in them. And so I think that what we're going to start to see is that there's probably going to be a very heavy um, legal landscape around this area for years to come. And again, hopefully we're going to continue to see states kind of wake up and go like, this is ridiculous. Like we like women deserve bodily autonomy. Um, yeah. Let's, let's give it back to them. What's our final day of feminism? On the 12th day of feminism. Okay, we've got two here. So, um, we can do this one actually, this is fun. On the 12th day of, um, on the 12th day of feminism, I'm actually going to take you guys to South Korea. And the reason I'm bringing this up, um, in March this year, I read an article uh, by The Cut about how some women are choosing to fight back against the patriarchy. Not by staying and fighting, but just by just walking away. Shaving their heads, ignoring makeup, and basically ignoring men in their lives as best as they can. And now whilst the movement I'm about to talk about has been around since sometime around 2015, 2016, it was completely new to me. And I'm counting it as one of the 12 days of feminism for 2023 uh, because I read the article this year. So like, bear with. Um, the cut article was written by Anna Louis uh, Sussman and was talked about and it talks about how a 2018 protest that took place in the streets of Seoul led um, a young Korean woman called Youngmi to find solace in the B in the 4B movement. Now, for those equally as clueless as I was, 4B is shorthand for four Korean words that all start with the B-I or no, um, it's translated to no in English. So the first no is the refusal of heterosexual marriage. The second is the refusal of uh, childbirth. The third is a refusal, uh, re refusal or saying no to dating. And the fourth is a rejection of heterosexual, any kind of heterosexual um, sexual relationships. It is both an ideological stance and a lifestyle. And many women, I sp uh, many women um, that the journalist spoke to extended that boycott to nearly all men in their lives, including distancing themselves from male friends. So essentially, rather than fighting the patriarchy, some women are choosing to leave it behind entirely. And the article was kind of about these groups who are finding different ways to kind of tackle these problems. And it kind of reminded me of the women in uh, Miriam Taves' book, Women Talking, where the women and girls of an isolated Mennonite colony choose to leave their village after they realise they are never going to be able to fight the patriarchal and violent nature of the community um, because they're just never going to be taken seriously and, and that's kind of a bit of a lost cause. Um, why I thought this was interesting to bring up now is uh, I don't necessarily agree with this. I, I think that actually completely separating two groups of people is actually not a healthy thing and I think that the further away you are from each other the less you learn from each other and again we don't believe that all men are violent, we believe there's a culture um, that of violence that men forgive and you know can continue to be perpetuated by men and women kind of not acknowledging it or not trying to address it but i think something as extreme as the 4b um however fun it is to shave your head and not wear makeup you know there was a thing about the fact that um there's like generations where it was, there's a notable dip in kind of the sale of makeup and uh, beauty products because they were basically boycotting the idea or the concept of um heterosexual beauty and so like that sort of stuff I can kind of like, I can understand why you would do that. Um, and a lot of them also uh, are really keen to like only support women businesses. So they basically map out where uh, female owned um, businesses are within uh, Korea and they make sure that they kind of spend the money there. But, you know, there's been huge 
the conversations around, you know, okay, well then can you have any male friendships? Can you get taught by a male teacher? Like, can you have any benefit from men whatsoever? And then the other thing of like, you know, is it only open to cisgender women or can we kind of like open it a bit further than that? Um, and so like they haven't ironed out the details, I don't think. Um, but what's I think what I found fascinating is that there are just some women who are so bored of this conversation and so bored with the violence and the expectation and kind of everything that comes with that. That they're like, sod this, we're just, we're just going to go and form female communities where we live among ourselves, we support each other. And one of them said that, um, some of them believe that, you know, as a women's collective economic, as the women's collective economic power grows, you know, so will their political power as well. So they're kind of like the hope being that obviously eventually they'll be able to um, assist in, in better policies going forward. Uh and I found this just, yeah, a really interesting article. Again, I don't agree necessarily with the movement in terms of it feels very yeah. segregated and like, probably not helpful. But I also, you know, see a group of people who are like, you know what, the patriarchy fucking sucks and we're not going to be able to change it. So let's let's try a different approach to this. From it. Yeah. yeah, and I suppose there'll be a bunch of people that will say, oh, just man-hating feminists. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's not positive and, and not positive for feminists as a you know as a as a thing um but i do i do get it you know like there, there are definitely times where we've all gone i know we have on this podcast just gone oh for fuck's sake i don't want to be involved <laughs> in any of it yeah like, it's just all shit um and you know and you want to remove yourself from it and you you said a minute ago you know it's not helpful to remove yourself completely from a certain group of people or a certain situation and I, I find it really difficult you know from a from the point of view of being very liberal and then reading right-wing stuff like I'm I just you know I want to block them all and I don't want anything to do with it but you know people will say well and I, I say it too you need to read it and you need to hear it in order to argue against it and understand the other other side yeah um so no I don't think it's helpful but you must just get to a point if you've if it's all you've been doing you've been fighting it and in a you know, in a particularly sexist society, perhaps you just go, I'm just not, I'm not doing it anymore. So I understand. Um, it's an interesting movement and it'll be interesting to know if something would, uh, yeah, will come from it. Yeah. The, the main reason I wanted to kind of bring up the 4B movement is because this year I also read Laura Bates' book, uh, Men Who Hate Women. And there's a lot of terminology and a lot of communities and groups that she references in there, which I don't think a lot of people know about. And so 4B, um, the women's movement in South Korea, I think would probably get likened to men going their own way, which is a, um, a male supremacist ideology. Again, about the idea that men should completely distance themselves away from women um, and uh, any kind of society that has been uh, corrupted by feminism. So slightly, slightly different. Um, you know thing but i think some people will see them as mirrors uh but then you also you've got uh the likes of incel communities and um there's some quite specific communities underneath that as well so the reason i felt it was important to bring up is if you've got a bit of spare time over over christmas one go by laura bates um men who hate women because i think it's incredibly educational and i think it just opens your eyes to what's happening in the digital space um but i think movements such as for 4b and men going their way and other things they're happening you know they are going on the world and people this is like a backlash to what's going on in political movements and political circles and um reaction to kind of you know movements in society as well so uh i thought it might be a bit of not fun reading but you know perhaps something that if you haven't heard about this stuff before um i think it's worth just knowing interesting. a little bit about it yeah
that's been our 12 days of Christmas, uh, 12 days of feminism. And I'd just like to point out to everybody, we may have been talking for nearly two hours, but actually I think <laughs> you're getting about 90 minutes of this. Yeah, we're quite done of it. Um, and we managed to get 12 topics into 90 minutes. <laughs> like, that's that's unheard of. I bet people started this episode and just thought, oh, fuck me, this is going to be... The, I'm, here, I'm here for the duration. <laughs> I think we did all right. I think like we I like cruised through. There were no tears, like yeah. a bit of laughter. Hopefully, um, if I had as much wine as I had, <laughs> probably a little bit, um, <laughs> a bit rosy cheeked like I am. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for joining in on our Christmas fun and uh, for kind of bearing with us on those twelve. Again, like, and if you've got any more, please share them with us. We, I don't think like struggles the wrong words, but I think like actually trying to find things which are going on this year which are really positive and worth celebrating, worth marketing, marketing, marking. I yeah, I, it wasn't as easy as I think it has been in previous years. So we'd love to hear your good news stories if we've missed anything. Um, we hope you oh, like the you twelve that we picked. Oh, you've got personal good news stories. Tell us I'll your personal that. good news stories too. That would be yeah. lovely. We'd love that. Um, and then in the new year, we got a couple of really great episodes coming out, uh, which we're super excited for. Um, and as Rhiannon mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this is one of three of this week. Um, so we're doing back to back recordings. Um, crazy uh, before Christmas, but actually they're going to be super worthwhile. So um, yeah, enjoy your Christmas breaks, and we will catch up with you in the new year some fab new content um with professor steve is back which is really cool very excited to have him back professor steve the young professor Um, is back try saying that four times while drunk right (laughs) so yeah happy uh happy christmas happy holidays happy hanukkah happy mountain appreciation day (laughs) and um have a fabulous break and new year yeah and um, maybe get yourself one of those period discs you know yeah i mean (laughs) report in tell us what it's like (laughs) The Unverisex is not sponsored, so if you liked our show, please show your support by liking, subscribing, and sharing on all your favourite social media platforms. We're on Twitter at The Unverisex, we're on Instagram and Facebook as at The Unverisex Podcast, and you can email us at theunverisex at gmail.com. No, oh my giddy aunt. Wine. Just stop this. <laughs> I was about to say, I think both of us have gone a, 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 a few times. Blah, and it's because blah, blah, blah. we are actually two women and two glasses of wine today. Um, and we haven't done it for a little while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No.